Heads Up, a podcast of real conversations about our minds and mental health, giving you a heads up about how to look after your head. Hello, I'm Bex and this is Heads Up. Each episode I interview guests about their work and personal experience in the world of mental health. In my first episode, I caught up with Hannah Lewis and Katie Neal from Rethink Mental Illness. Rethink are a charity that challenges attitudes about mental illness and provides information and support to people across England, from crisis and recovery houses to peer support groups. A couple of years ago, I began volunteering for Rethink as one of their young champions. Hannah and Katie are two of the staff members who run projects in the London boroughs of Westminster, Kensington and Chelsea, and Hammersmith and Fulham. They're both so warm and friendly, volunteering with them was such a pleasure, and I knew I wanted them as my very first guests on the podcast. We talk about how they got into the charity sector, body dysmorphia, how to take your first steps in telling someone, the myth of contagion when discussing mental illness, and exercise as nourishment, not punishment. I hope you enjoy the episode. Hello, Katie, Neil, and Hannah Lewis. Hi, guys. How are you today? Oh, great. <laughs> so happy to see you all face. Thanks so much for being here on the podcast. Um, we've all got a cup of tea in our hands. Correct. Um, and we're on the 15th floor of the Rethink offices in Vauxhall in London. So tell me a bit about you guys. Tell me about Rethink and your roles here. You go first. Okay. <laughs> so I'm Katie. I am a project officer working on the Triborough project. Um, so I'm a working co-production. So our project is a local project which is based in Hammersmith and Fulham, Kensington and Chelsea, and Westminster. Um, and we work with young people aged 16 to 25. Um, on co-productive projects, so that's combining the knowledge and experience of young people who live around the area with the expertise of the council professionals in the area and also the knowledge of the commissioners. So working together with everybody on projects around things like mental health training in schools, um, mental health awareness through our conference work stream, um, and also doing reviews of the local services um, in a collaborative and co-productive way of course. Um, so that's our work in a nutshell. Um, Amazing. Yeah. And Hannah? Yeah so um, my project's a bit more specific. I'm the project officer for Step Up and uh, what we do is we use the same co-production model so we get people who are experts by experienced age 16 to 25 and we co-produce workshops to go into schools and we go into schools and we get conversations going around mental health and how to manage your own mental health and how to essentially prevent the onset of more serious mental health problems. Okay and the reason I know you both is because I signed up to be a young champion for Rethink uh, maybe a year ago. Mm. Um, So as a young champion what can you tell us a bit more about young champions and why they're important and what they do? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think this is a really exciting time, actually, for co-production because it's putting experts by experience as the vanguard of mental health research, policy and practice. And what, I, what I mean by that is that people who have the insight of mental health problems or mental illness are much more respected for their insight now than they were before. I think many thanks to the anti-stigma campaigns, such as Time to Change, we're really um, able to value what they can bring to the table. 
Um, the sort of theory behind it is that you're making services much more efficient and productive by having the involvement of the end user from the very beginning of the service, so from the point of design to delivery and then evaluation, like Katie was saying, and her project does a bit of as well. Yeah, is there anything else you want to add? No, just that I think it's so important because like, you can't design or work on projects that are about benefiting young people without having that input. It just it just makes sense um, if you're talking about young people's mental health to have young people in those conversations and saying the real things that are actually affecting them and what could help. So Yeah, absolutely. I think um, my project manager always uses the metaphor of a menu in a restaurant. So, um, for example... One of my favourite restaurants, let's say, is Nando's. And other restaurants are available. Correct. <laughs> and I love the beanie burger, so every time I go, I get the beanie burger. But what if one time Nando's was just like, actually, we're going to stop all the vegetarian options. Um, we're actually going to make sure that all the things come with extra hot sauce. Um, actually, disclaimer, I get peritamer on my food because I'm such <laughs> a baby. Um, but, yeah, imagine if, like, I just rocked up one day expecting for my needs to be met as a vegetarian. That doesn't like hot sauce. That doesn't like hot sauce, and that's all that was on offer. Um, yes, that's, like, in a nutshell, how I see co-production. Co-production is like Nando's. It's like Nando's, really. Yeah, they got rid of the vegetarian option. Yeah. yeah. Sure. Tell me what uh, kind of things young champions can get involved with. So I was quite heavily involved in your Invisible Struggles event uh, last year uh, where we all uh, came to meetings and we helped to design a big event that created awareness and we invited all our favourite speakers and workshop um, holders to to do things in the community. So we held it at the Hammersmith Lyric. Um, So other than that, what other things can young champions get involved with? So there are all sorts, aren't there? Um, So like you said, there was the Youth Mental Health Conference last year and we're hoping to do something really similar this year coming up. And the hope is actually to do it even bigger um, and split it into... But doing it in schools. So going into schools, um, doing almost as a drop-down day so the students in the school can get involved. Um, We'll help bring in lots of different people um, and it'll be something that's out there and that'll be something our young champions would again be able to help with what that looks like who speaks, what topics we cover mm-hmm. pretty much all of it really um, so that would be the conference work stream um, we're also doing, I mentioned before about the training that we do so um, I should specify that with Triborough we do um, training for teachers and professionals so going into schools talking to teachers about the facts that might be affecting young people and what can help, what they can do about it, and just general mental health awareness. Also developing and designing training for parents, so thinking about what could your parents have done to help support you um, growing up, so talking to parents about mental health. Um, Yeah, so mainly like the training sorts of things, but also reviews of services in the area Mm -hmm. is another big one. Um, So looking at the services that service users currently access um, and what you think of them interviewing other service users and really putting the voice of the users back into 
the decision making so that's sort of work yeah absolutely and in terms of step up um, we're at quite an exciting time at the minute because we've been running for three years now so it's time for us to sort of look back and see what's worked really well and spend um, a few months doing the evaluation and whilst we're doing that we're actually splitting the age bracket that we deliver to so we're trying to focus um, next on university students I mean like we've seen the statistics out there there are demographics that really need I think specific interventions and we found with the content of our step up um, workshop it's probably more tailored to um, primary secondary school sort of ages because it's got that preventative approach Um, So what's going to be exciting is in the next two years, I think, we're going to be working with universities, but we're going to work on a more sustainable model. So hopefully it's going to be, it's going to look a bit like peer mentoring by the end of it and we'll be able to sort of hand down the coping strategies and the self-help tips that our champions have come up with. Um, Yeah, and then they'll just live on forever, I guess, which will be good. We both work in the sector, which is known for being quite competitive and hard to get into, mm-hmm. and probably quite their money as well. <laughs> yeah. Tell me about how you both got into uh, working for Rethink and your sort of background and how you got there. Sure. Um, I, just, I decided quite early on that this was the route I wanted to take. I think um, it must have been towards the end of my undergraduate degree I was like right mental health needs to do it so I've had my eyes on the prize for quite a while um honestly I just volunteered until I couldn't volunteer anymore <laughs> like um just getting getting myself in with smaller charities and just really broadening experience through literally doing everything from research to policy to clinical work shadowing interning volunteering everything um because it, it is, like you said, so competitive, especially I moved to London in order to work in the sector because um, it's where, you know, most of the big ones live. And there were a lot of rejections and a lot of setbacks, but I think you've just got to make sure that your passion for the subject that you're campaigning and fighting so hard for doesn't get don't get affected by those knockbacks. It's not personal, it's just competition and it's just life, really. <laughs> How about you? Yeah, I'm a bit different. So I didn't initially think, oh, I definitely want to go into the charity sector. I was actually thinking about teaching, first of all. Um, and I got as far as, like, I was all ready to do primary school teaching, like, had the course all set up. And then I just thought before I went into it, I'm just going to do a bit more work experience because I'm not quite sure. And from doing that, I found that there were lots of aspects of teaching that I liked, but actually I didn't think that was the right step for me. So I took a year out, did some volunteering on that and then got a job with a charity off the back of that, which is sort of how I found working for a charity and also how I found sort of youth development stuff. So I was working in um, for, on the ICS programme, which is for international development and youth development. Um, so I did that for a couple of years and found that the thing that I was really passionate about was the development of young people, um, the difference that young people can make which is why I think co-production is so great and why I'm so excited about doing that um, but the thing that I wasn't getting in that job was that mental health is something that I think is really important um, and something I was really interested in so then I went into pursuing that um, so yeah I came came into this job through other charity work around youth development if that makes mm-hmm. sense I think that makes perfect sense, to be honest yeah. with you, because I think mental health now is seen in a lot less 
of an isolated way and we're starting to see how it is embedded across many different um, subjects and topics and so I think youth development and mental health actually work so well together. Mm. Yeah absolutely and just anything that like because it is such a big thing and I think it's so all-encompassing like we talk about everybody having mental health Mm. and it's 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 true and that mental health can impact so many different areas and if you're a young person and you're at a vulnerable stage in your life then being able to do anything you can to help that resilience um, at a younger stage I think really benefits later on definitely yeah and what do you think about the the sort of current representation of mental health because it's still in in my opinion seen as uh, a negative term so we, we use mental health to mean mental illness when actually it means like health it means physical health um and everyone has it and you need to sustain it like you do your physical health with exercise and diet and you need to sustain your mental health so i think we're at a weird stage where it's both people are still terrified of the word because it can Absolutely. hold a lot of uh, negative connotations um, but it's also a bit of a buzzword and people talk about it a lot and you know advertising campaigns are using it and well-being is all over the place so what do you kind of think about that i completely agree with that actually that it is a bit of a weird a weird one because we talk about mental health and i mean i'm i know i'm guilty of saying i work for a mental health charity and well technically mm-hmm. we're, we're focusing on like where we think mental illness we're talking exactly. about mental health problems and the sort of negative side of that and I use it in a way sometimes that probably isn't saying it in a neutral way, even though that is what we spend all our time yeah, trying, to, trying to encourage. So I, I would agree that it's a bit of a nuanced one. Um, yeah, definitely nuanced. Um, I think I, I agree with what you're saying when people often say they have like they have mental health in a really solemn way, and I'm like great fantastic congratulations we all need better mental health and like no no I've got depression so I've got mental health I'm like no honey you have a mental illness and I think the distinction between the two is quite um still something that we're grappling with and still trying to get a hold on um but do you know it's quite interesting because I used to work for a charity that was very much focused on public mental health and prevention and so we used words like well-being and health promotion and I got swept up in that and I thought oh that's great but then I felt a bit of a conflict with myself because I myself have been diagnosed with a mental illness and then I thought you know we can all strive for well-being and good mental health but you know illnesses still exist and people with illnesses will still exist Mm -hmm. so I think it's important to when you think of mental health and mental illness see it on that spectrum we've all seen the mental health and illness continuum Mm -hmm. haven't we and I think that's a really good way to conceptualize this issue um so that we don't get confused over the language that's used I think sometimes as well it's thinking of it as just health and there's this Mm -hmm. we still make the separation between physical health Mm. and mental health and actually those two things they're linked together and what has happened is it's this you know mental health is oh it's a stigmatized thing and the language around it's all caught up but actually when you talk about when you put the word health on its own that is a neutral term Mm -hmm. and I don't think people have a problem with that so mental health and physical health will always be interlinked because they play off each other absolutely yeah yeah so I think almost just thinking of it as health is probably what will be I imagine the next step almost mm-hmm. because then you're just saying health and that covers absolutely everything and then you're thinking of mental illnesses as just being a health problem yeah. as opposed to it being a mental health problem which is something totally. So I think almost combining the two mm-hmm. um, is sort of 
where I'd like to see us go, really. And I think that is a much more holistic approach, and I think if we keep on this trajectory, that's probably where we'll find ourselves mm. into it. Um, hopefully, anyway. Yeah. I like that idea, just seeing it as one comfort, just health, yeah. a person's health. Mm. And Hannah, you mentioned there that you had been diagnosed with a mental health mm. um, and a few weeks ago I was scrolling on the BBC News app oh, and no. whose name and face did I see? Me, popping <laughs> up like a bad smell, can I get rid of it? <laughs> Gets why water wouldn't. <laughs> so tell me a bit about that, I didn't know you were writing an article um, and I thought it was brilliant, so tell, yeah. me, tell, me, tell me how about that came about. Um, so, and anyone who's spoken to me for longer than 30 seconds knows I'm very passionate about the um, connection between body image and mental health and that comes from a place of um, personal motivation because when I was around nine or ten years old I started with symptoms of body dysmorphic disorder which was just a huge inconvenience um, would not recommend but then that led on to um, disordered eating and eating disorder like bulimia, binge eating um, so yeah I've just not had a very great time with my body image but that is not an isolated issue and going back to what we were saying before about how you know physical and mental health is all interlinked like that one area of my mental health and of my identity my body image then had such massive repercussions and affected my mental health in such a profound way by you know opening the floodgates to depression anxiety just every coma but you could shake a stick at really um, so I've always sort of, because of my own experiences, been really keen on campaigning and really keen on um, joining movements that raise awareness of these more nuanced issues such as body image and the link with your mental health. So there is a campaign at the moment called the Bereal Campaign and I'm an ambassador for that campaign and what that does is really lobby um, the government to make proper tangible changes that could impact an individual's mental health and body image. Things like negotiating with the advertising standards in um, advertising standards agency, isn't it? About the images that they portray. Um, so basically, I'm going off on tangents as they always do, but this piece came about because um, conveniently during Eating Disorders Awareness Week, the Bereal campaign published a piece of research and it was about the impact of appearance-based bullying and the impacts on your mental health basically and how that can impact um, your body image and what you know what happens after that it's pretty similar to my story and the research was so interesting I'd really recommend everyone as a read it's called In Your Face and it did not surprise me at all that one of the most common reasons for appearance-based bullying was um, due to a person's weight whether that was um, they're too fat too skinny I mean, kids can be cruel and they will find something to criticise you for. Um, but yeah, that's another campaign I'm really passionate about because I was bullied when I was younger about my appearance and I really think that set the stage for my body dysmorphia to come along um, due to a few other factors as well, but that was really one of the big ones. So yeah. That's amazing. Well done. Oh, thanks. <laughs> I try. Uh, what kind of response did you get? Um, really positive ones. I had um, my friends and family like, honey, you on the BBC today? I'm like, yeah, that's me. Sorry, I forgot to tell you. Um, no, but it was great. And I think I got like some nice messages and some nice emails from people that I already knew. And I, I forget because people who don't work with me in mental health probably don't know like my backstory and why I'm interested in um, mental health to begin with. And so it was, it was really great for people to sort of be like, 
<laughs> this is funny actually, but, oh, but I'd never have known. But I'd never have known. I'm like, hmm, why? <laughs> do, do you not see the tattoo I have on my head that says mentally ill? Yeah. Um, yeah, so that's, that was interesting. Mostly positive, but then a couple of like eye rolls as well, of course. And how, at what point did you make that transition from sort of talking about mental health and then talking about your own experience about mental health? Have you always been quite open about it or was it something you've been in the last few years? I'll tell you when it was. It was... It was 2014 and there was this... It's a real pivotal moment in my mental health journey and I'd say it's when I started living with mental illness because up until then it was a very passive process it was very much like it was happening to me and I sort of had no say in the matter and I had um I had no role to play but then something switched then and I began to get a bit more empowered I think and I began to own my mental illness and be like no you've done this to me for years now now it's time for me to take the reins back and you know since then only positive things have happened really you know I've had um lots of success on campaigns and then I've got like my dream job here just chatting about mental health with my fave gals and a cup of tea um and so it's it's worked out really well actually yeah because I think mm. a lot of people, you know, the advice is to talk to someone, and we hear that a lot. Mm-hmm. And mm. it's quite, it's quite vague advice, I think. Um, and also, it's just, you know, people just don't know how to bring it up, how to absolutely. Sometimes telling strangers can be easier than telling your friends and family. Hundred um, percent. You know, because they, you don't want to burden them, you don't want to worry them. Mm. Um, so, what would you say to people who are wanting to talk more about it? You know, I found that volunteering for a mental health charity yeah. is a really good way of doing Absolutely. it, um, mm. and sort of learning about mental illness yourself while um, uh, sort of having a voice, but not having to, you know, have those uh, conversations with people that aren't necessarily equipped to to give you advice or to listen yeah. very well. And you know, I've had GPs who aren't very good at <laughs> listening either. Yeah, I've been there. So what was your I think just going back to what you said a couple of seconds ago when you said talking to strangers is actually a lot easier um, it's funny you should say that because one of my sort of first steps in like I say reclaiming my illness was blogging and sort of writing articles about my experiences and some particular diagnoses that I had and I found that process of turning something so subjective like my experience into a piece of writing a piece of coherent writing like quite an objective process almost if that makes sense so I took something that was so personal to me and was so emotionally charged but then I turned it into a piece of writing that was appropriate for wider audiences and that process I think was really integral in my recovery, I think, that transitioned um, into me writing academically and sort of studying mental health in different contexts and writing reports and essays about it. And it was no longer then something that had beat me up for all these years. It was something that I was actually really smashing myself, like, <laughs> by creating these great pieces of writing about it. Um, so I'd really recommend that. And I'm not saying go and publish your story in the newspaper tomorrow, but maybe just keeping a journal would be a really great first step, I think. How about you? Um, so I'm probably quite... I probably came back quite differently. So I have got a tendency to, like, keep things bottled up. I've never really been one for, like, sharing my feelings, which sounds bizarre considering, like, where I work and um, a lot of the stuff that I'm really passionate about... 
Um, and I actually um, thought about counselling to become a counsellor. And I think through that and through talking about things in that part of it is does involve obviously talking about your own feelings and talking about your own problems. And I think, and as part of that, actually, I had to go to counselling, which I think, one, helped me start to open up, but also helped me realise that this wasn't something that I was actually very good at. And whilst I was very good at asking other people what was going on, I wasn't, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're good at talking about what's going on with yourself. So I think sometimes it's having a bit of self-compassion and realising, actually you don't always have to be the one helping. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you can talk about yourself and that's all right as well. Mm-hmm. And you don't have to go really deep the first time. We talk about, you know, time to talk and talk about an offload and everything, but sometimes it is just saying to someone, oh, I had a bad day, mm-hmm. and then letting them ask questions and actually thinking and being like, I am going to be honest about this and sharing a bit more and a bit more. Um, and then when you feel a bit more comfortable talking about it. So I think it's just, it's little steps. Definitely. Um, and for me, it was people that I was closer to that I talk about sort of problems with. Um, and then gradually you become more comfortable with having these conversations around your well-being and how you're feeling. Um, so I'd say just like someone you're comfortable with, an environment you're comfortable with, and start to share just a little bit mm. and then kind of continue in that on that track I'd say mm-hmm. oh, that's really good, that's really good advice, yeah. across your careers and in your personal life have you got any sort of mental health myths that you would like to dispel what kind of stereotypes do you get or cliches have you come across or what do people say to you on the street when you tell them what you do for a living oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah um one of the most annoying things is just, oh, so you work with crazy people. I'm Do like, yeah, that? crazy, talented people. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, seriously, still. And I, it just baffles me. Even, like, like at first, I sometimes couldn't be bothered, like, engaging in conversation. When someone asked me where I work, I'd sometimes just say, oh, charity. Um, just to avoid the whole, oh, you work with, like, mental people. Um, but now I'm just like, yeah, whatever. I work for a mental health charity. You're the, you're the moron here. <laughs> you're the only crazy person because you're so old-fashioned and stereotypical. <laughs> anyway. I've actually had, like, again, like, I feel like I'm always like, I've actually had a different experience. Oh, go on. <laughs> but I was going to say that normally when I say I work for mental health, I like, oh, that's really interesting. And then people asking, like, really in-depth questions, which is great. But then one thing that does come across in terms of like mental health myths is that I think we're still quite bad for the language that like language use and things like I still hear people that I know in lots of other contexts, I know they're quite aware, and then they'll just slip in an old, oh they're a bit OCD. Oh, and I'm gosh, like, yeah. oh <laughs> is this something that I, let's think about that for a second mm-hmm. and what that actually means. Um, so I think using actual mental health illnesses that have been diagnosed as like mm. a casual as like term. adjectives mm. and there's some that people absolutely would never use but I do still think like OCD does still come up quite a lot yeah absolutely um, well on the one hand it's good that people know sometimes like OCD sure, maybe sure. 50 years ago that wouldn't have happened and you know my brother has OCD and mm. I've had a you know I've had a long hard thing about how I feel that when people say something like oh I'm a bit OCD or um, whatever, and you know what what they actually mean usually is they like things in a certain order, or they like you mm-hmm. know their kitchen to be clean, or whatever. Um, but to be honest, what I've decided is I generally try to take people's benefit out, and actually sometimes 
that might be people's only way of yeah. actually saying they they are struggling with something. And if that's you know, if humour or making a joke is the only way of them getting that out there and yeah. and people listening, then that might be actually maybe that's their first step stepping stone of telling someone. Mm. Um, it's it, it might not be, um, but in one way we have come somewhere just mm. so the fact that people know certain words. I mean, there's lots of things that still scare people, like yeah. BPD, and mm. it's a big one, or mm. personality disorders of any kind. Um, but OCD at least is on people's radar, even if they don't quite yeah. understand yeah. it yet. I think you make a really good point, Bex, and it makes me think about sort of my first reactions to the question of like mental health myths and how I'm like, oh god, all these people with their old views, all stigmatising, blah blah blah, and I'm like, I forget sometimes that I do live in a little mental health bubble. Like I surround myself with you guys who work in the chat in the sector um, and have experience, and so are really knowledgeable about it. And maybe a responsibility of us is to educate these people who who aren't at the same point we are and who still get a bit scared by the term mental health and maybe instead of being like eye-rolling and being like, oh, you're so stigmatising, we actually open up mm-hmm. conversations. Why yeah, do you think that? Yeah. If you're not asking questions, then you're not opening, you know, you're not willing to hear the answers. So That's even right, if the questions yeah. are a little bit... Um, whatever, you know, potentially offensive. Mm. I'm just, you know, it's one of the reasons yeah. I'm making this podcast is not to go, oh God, I'm so offended by that. Yeah. Get to say, well, it's interesting you think that. And and for me, you know, I, I just realised that if you're thinking that and I know you, there's probably millions, millions of people who yeah. are wanting to answer to those exact same questions. So, you know, the, there's no, there should be no question that you should be afraid to ask, really. No, I completely agree with because that, yeah. you're just thinking it and then the sort of the stigmas are going on mm, forever mm. anyway. Um, so I'm a big advocate of people asking questions, however silly they may seem. Yeah, totally. And at least we know where the starting yeah. point is. And how no, it's so true. <laughs> mm, it's, I think it's easy for us to get our back up, especially if we've got lived experience, and you're like, oh, this is a, offensive to me personally. But then you're like, actually, it's not your fault. Society is just mm. a bit behind, and we're just, just all still trying to make this culture shift happen, aren't we? Mm. So. I think it goes into the whole thing about, like, it's a different generation and different generational challenges. And people are more, it does seem like mental health is something that people are talking about more. But there are lots of other issues as well, if you think about like the snowflake thing mm-hmm. um, and this idea of like, is it that this generation is more sensitive or is it just that they're more open to things? Mm-hmm. And oh, I, don't, I don't really know where I'm going with this point. But no, no, it's, it's interesting though, isn't it? It's one of those things that I think it's a bit of a complicated one to unpick because then you hear like a lot of people talking about self care. Um, and that being used in loads of different contexts which is, you know, great and then you find yourself thinking about like, oh, what does that actually mean and um, yeah, I just find it a really nuanced well, so area. It's really interesting so this is this concept from like that um, people look at on uh, this uh, younger generation and think that they're melting, or they're just everything's mm-hmm. so, yeah. you know, they're offended by everything and they've got ten different genders and mental health problems and blah um, which I always thought actually was, was sort of the older generation looking, looking down on us and mm. saying that. But actually, I met someone recently who said that he thought that, that everyone was too, uh, too open about these things and there's just some things that you need to keep to yourself and we're all too encouraged. And I think that there is this idea that once you start talking about something, it suddenly becomes contagious. So you talk about self-harm. Suddenly everyone's going to start doing it. You talk mm. about suicide. Suddenly, you know, and yeah, obviously yeah. that's not the case. It's Absolutely. actually the opposite mm. probably. Um, but, but, you know, how do you dispel this myth that, you know, educating children or young people about something like self-harm um, isn't going to sort of cause widespread chaos and panic and, and they all start doing it? You know, what would you say to parents who think that? It's a, 
It's a really tricky one, and I think working in schools, we've both sort of discussed how we come across mm. those reactions quite often, and this idea that you're going to put the idea in the head and you don't want to cause them, and especially from a research background, when I worked to do um, a study into self-harm amongst young people, a lot of researchers were sort of like, well, I've got children, I wouldn't let you anywhere near my children talk about self-harm. Mm. And... It's a really tricky one, isn't it? I, yeah, think... I think it... Sorry. No, go on. I was going to say, sometimes like, the way we talk about it is almost breaking it down and saying, well, what actually is self-harm? And saying, well, it's, it's a behaviour, isn't it? You're, talking, you're not talking about self-harm, isn't it? It's a behaviour. Um, and then, what kind of behaviour? Well, it's a coping mechanism. It's not a particularly good one if you break it down into that. And then looking at the reasons why you would do that... I think when you break it down and sort of take on a bit more of an understanding of it, then it's a bit easier to see that it's not something that can be, you know, it's not something that you catch and actually if you're talking yeah. about it as a coping mechanism and something where someone does need help, then... No, I completely agree. And I think an issue around talking about self-harm is that we have very sort of old school ideas of what that actually means. I think it's very traditional thinking to be like, there's only one method of self-harm and that's cutting for example but I think what we need to do moving forward is look at self-harm in a more holistic way on a more of a spectrum and see how you know exactly like Katie said it's a it's a negative coping mechanism so surely other negative coping mechanisms which are directed inwards to your body such as disordered eating um, excessive drinking substance misuse risk-taking behaviors surely that can all come into the same bracket as self-harm and maybe that would be more helpful for parents and teachers to understand. And something that probably everyone has experienced in some way. Oh gosh, yeah. Excessive drinking to, to cope in some way. Exactly. Mm. When we start to unpick it like that and realise that, you know, it's it's very common in society and it's not just scars in your arm, yeah. then we start to understand why, you know, why we need to teach kids about it and say, <laughs> well, when you notice these things, um, then, you know, we should nip it in the bud or we should talk about it and be more open. Which reminds me, Tell, tell me a bit about, so um, with the work that we've done, that I've done with you guys, we've done things like the um, like self-care boxes and things like mm-hmm. that, and mental health first aid. So tell me about um, your two's uh, sort of heads-up hacks, is what I'm calling them. Uh, sort of self-care, I mean, I don't know how you feel about that term, <laughs> but sort of um, hacks for looking after your head. Okay, so, I like that, um, yeah. Um, so I realised mine actually on I was thinking about this as well. Um, I realised mine on Saturday and I was in a I was in a bit of a weird place on Friday and woke up in a really bad place on Saturday. Um, and I'm currently training for half marathon. So <laughs> casual. <laughs> you know, like you humble brag. <laughs> um, but I knew I needed to do a long run. Um, and I wasn't particularly looking forward to it, but actually it completely turned my day around and just being able to... There's something about exercising, but exercising outside for me um, that I find really, really therapeutic and taking the time to be... It's by myself, I'm doing something that's physically active um, and a chance to kind of think things through in my head. Um, And I actually find, yeah, so exercise outside for me um, even if I don't want to do it. Well, that's the thing. How do you get to... Because these things, there's so many things that you feel great after you do them. Mm. Just getting yourself to that place to do them. You know, just getting yourself out there to run is, is like the hardest bit. Mm. It's maybe even harder than the run itself. Yeah. 
sometimes if it is that the case, I think some, the main things are the out, being outdoors and movement. So if it's, oh, I can't run today, like, I can't do it, getting out and going on a walk, um, listening to a podcast. Um, but that, there's something about it being outside. So I think taking it one step at a time, if it's stepping outside your house... Um, just like looking at the sky mm-hmm. um, even if it's raining it helps to be outside and then if that's not you know walking and then building it up that way mm-hmm. and I think once you see it as a positive thing and you know that it's going to be something that you enjoy it becomes a little bit easier um, whereas if it's something that you think is going to be terrible and you won't enjoy then obviously it's Mm, I'm really glad you chose that one because that goes quite nicely with my head hack. Mm -hmm. Um, So my head hack is something that I've shared with you guys Mm -hmm. quite a lot and shared with the Step Up Champions and now we use it um, as part of our workshop and it's the um, body functionality exercise that I always talk about and basically I picked this up in therapy myself and I also did some research on it and I think it's a really new and innovative approach um, to the way we see our bodies. Like I've mentioned, you know, body image is something that's really haunted me over the years and so this really helped me sort of reframe how I think about myself and my body and instead of seeing it like an ornament, it's more like a vehicle. So I mean that I, I start to appreciate more what it can do as opposed to just how it looks. So some of the examples I give to the um, kids are things like, you know, oh, I don't like my nose, it's so big. And then I'm like, oh, wait, but my nose can smell, so that's cool, and helps me breathe. And then, you know, oh, I don't like my stomach, like it's too far. And I'm like, oh, well, actually, my stomach keeps all my organs in place, and that's really helpful, so my intestines aren't on the floor. And, you know, it goes on and on and on, and it's something that I think... um, people that we work with are really receptive to and so have all started to come, to come up with their own sort of ideas but um, I'd like to, oh sorry I just spat on you there, <laughs> but I'd like to um, raise body functionality in the context of exercise because mm. we've spoken about this quite yeah. a lot haven't we, because obviously like with the, an eating disorder like bulimia you can often use exercise in quite a negative and toxic mm-hmm. way um, so when I sort of started to reintroduce myself to exercise after that period um, of bulimia I use this approach and instead of being like you know oh I need to run to burn the calories and I need to do like this many K so that I burn off all that fat blah 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 I was just like oh look I'm running and like that's quite cool look at my legs look at how they carry me look at how fast they can take me and by by looking at exercise through that lens I found it much more positive mm. than I did beforehand mm. yeah I think that's such a good point it's it's, it's about exercise as something that you enjoy and a way yeah. of moving your body and celebrating that as opposed to it being exercise to For achieve yeah, achieve yeah. a particular goal particularly the goal of weight loss I think mm. can be a bit problematic mm. um, absolutely whereas if you're exercising because of general wellness <laughs> Then, no, n- now I have to always ask myself, why are you doing this? Is it for nourishment or punishment? And if it's for punishment, I'll just be like, time out, hun. Like, that's, that's a word for yourself. That's when you favourite nourishment or punishment. Yeah. Punishment. <laughs> or punishment. Yeah. Right. Because I don't deserve to be punished. Like, I'm good. I want to write that and stick it in my <laughs> stick it in my house somewhere. I think you should. <laughs> um, and I asked you to both think of a mental health hero mm-hmm. or something or someone. Um, doing great work in the mental health world at the moment so it can be a campaign, it can be a person um, how do you have a think? I can see Hannah writing something down like, 
I've got loads to choose from. Um, do you want me to do mine first? You do yours, okay. yeah. Um, so, not necessarily directly a sort of massive like, person in like campaigns and policy or anything like that, but a person that I follow on Instagram actually um, that I absolutely love and I just feel like she talks about things in a really smart way through illustration is someone called by I think she's by Maria Andrews I know you mean you told me to follow her yeah and she's an illustrator and she's got a book as well but she does really simple illustrations about um, her everyday life her anxiety her relationships um, good things bad things and they sort of show her thoughts and where she comes to how she gets to them and I just really like it because it's sort of a window into this quite intimate window into someone's soul but also showing and normalising those different insecurities and those irrational thoughts mm-hmm. um, in the sort of very neat square box of Instagram. In a way that maybe a photo or selfie can't because you can draw your feelings, you can draw things around. Absolutely. I can't her, but yeah. I, there's a few other people that I can think of. It's a really interesting mm-hmm. um, illustration. It's a really powerful tool, actually, mm-hmm. on Instagram. So there's Ruby Etc. I love yeah. her. Oh, she's so great. illustrated Natasha Devon's new book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> What's it called? How to be mental. Like the age of legend. And also um, Jessie Cave. Mm-hmm. Now hers, I wouldn't say specifically mental health, but you get into the world of sort of neuroses and relationships. Mm, and love it. Um, yeah, and, and, and humour as well. They're, yeah. They can be quite funny um, and relatable. So, oh, but I love mm-hmm. it. Great. Gemma Carell's another one as well. Gemma Carell. Yeah. Okay, she, you might see her cards in... Um, well-known card shops that I won't know. <laughs> um, but she does, again, similar stuff about sort of this very, very human way of displaying emotions and thoughts through mm. illustration. Um, yeah. It's a really good medium, isn't it? So I've narrowed it down to two. I'm allowed to. One's a campaign, one's an, in, one's an individual. So the campaign, um, who've actually helped me out quite a lot, is not plant-based, if you've heard of them. It's basically two girls, um, Laura and Eve, and they've both had experience of disordered eating and eating disorders, and now they, you're, they're using their experience to sort of combat the myths we get around wellness and nutrition and diets and, uh, and all those <laughs> toxic things that come into our lives. Um, and something that Eva started doing recently is a supper club for anxious eaters, she calls them. Ooh, that sounds good. It's so cool. So, like, there's, there's a group of us and we get together and we've all had some experience of disordered eating, but we sit around a table and Eva will cook for us and we just... We know we're all uncomfortable and we know we're all anxious, but for some reason knowing that beforehand just makes us all so much more comfortable with each other. And so it turns like what's often a daunting um, prospect, so eating, and makes that into a really nice social occasion. And I think that really helps with like your cognitive restructuring of eating and food when you're like going through an eating disorder. Um, speaking of eating disorders, my individual who has got to be my mental health hero is Megan Crabb, also known as Body Posse Panda. She's had a disordered eating journey herself, and now I just, I think her Instagram has been really integral in my own recovery journey because I've seen someone who I know has had the same thoughts that I've had, and yet to see her come across as so accepting of a body and my therapist even recommended that I followed her on Instagram and I was like honey I'm one step ahead (laughs) but um, what she said was really great about her is that 
yeah sure she's part of the body positivity movement and she promotes self-love and self-care and stuff like that but she said really what's what's the most um authentic thing about her is that she actually talks about body neutrality and that's Mm. you know for someone who has struggled with the body it's it's about not making that jump from hating yourself to loving yourself it's more like being a bit impartial to yourself and I think for me and where I am on my journey that's a really nice goal that I have and it's a lot more manageable than turning to someone who's like you know oh self-love body acceptance love myself like I'm a bit off that yeah so that's really interesting because mm. it's that whole idea that the opposite of uh, love isn't hate, it's yeah. Mm, yeah. totally. You know, it's, it's feeling indifferent to something, and if that's more of a realistic goal, then you're right, then seeing all people going, I love myself, I love my body, and just love yourself, you know, that can seem like quite an ambitious thing for someone yeah. who is so deeply, you know, yeah. entwined in an eating disorder or something like that, so it's totally. really mm. interesting point, yeah. I think that really works as well for like, when you're talking about just across all mental health problems and well-being, um, and thinking about this idea about it's actually we're talking about a general level of wellness it's not we're not saying that the pinnacle is always being great yeah. I think this idea of just being you know just, just generally being happy all the time which yeah. I've had people say that to me before you know um, they, their expectation is to be that you have to be happy all the time and that that's just absurd you mm-hmm. couldn't possibly do, do that if you if you were happy all the time, you would probably have some kind of mental illness. Yeah, yeah. You, can't, you yeah. can't keep that up. You, actually, not... you need to be neutral and then have periods of ups and downs. Absolutely. I think asking or wanting to not be acutely mentally ill for long periods of time is reasonable. Mm-hmm. But I think yeah. saying I want to be happy all the time is a bit unreasonable. Mm-hmm. Maybe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And tell me how uh, people can volunteer with rethink. I got an email about the Time to Change Champions. Yes, that's true. They're recruiting again. So they use um, a similar model where they get people aged 16 to 25 who all have lived experience and get them involved in their anti-stigma and anti-discrimination campaigns. Um, Here in CoPro, still recruiting for champs, aren't we? Yeah, so the differences, I guess, are if you are interested in Time to Change, absolutely sign up. Um, that would be more sort of UK-wide. So what's the difference between... So Rethink's the umbrella... Um, charity and Mm. there's time to change which is the campaign that's um, ran by both Rethink and Mind so if that makes sense yeah Yeah. Um, so that's so that our department is just Rethink yeah so our department is just Rethink and Just Code Production as well yeah Um, so it's working on the kind of collaborative projects that we mentioned earlier Um, and like we said it's mainly well for me, it literally is, like, London-based. Yeah, um, same. So working on local projects and doing things around sort of delivery, development, mm-hmm. production. Um, and then if there are any one-off opportunities that we come across, we are very keen to send those your way. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So the network of about... How many champions do we have now? Uh, 48. About 48. Um, <laughs> that was a very specific number. <laughs> <laughs> on the dot. <laughs> um, um, yeah, and so I think once you're part of that network, you know, you'll be part, you'll be exposed to all the opportunities that we get. Yeah. But also, I think what's really great is that element of peer support. You also get a sort of a secondary effect, like, I don't know, Bex, you tell people if I'm just <laughs> chatting rubbish, but, you know, the, the idea of, like I was saying about the supper club, just being around like-minded people who you know, yeah. you know all have something in common, uh, all sort of strive for the same goals. And different schools and universities and, you know, it, it's not, it's, it's a funny kind of social club, but that's, yeah. you know, it's, it's not, you know, 
20 people sat in a room, you know, talking about their mental illness. It's mm. 20 people sat in a room coming with ideas, yeah. recommending things for each other, planning these big events, mm. you know, and um, wanting to make a difference. So it's, yeah, it, I would urge people to get more. If you email it, us at coproduction at rethink.org, then uh, that's coproduction at rethink.org. And then what do the champions have to do? They have to apply and write a bit about this. Yeah, just drop us a line and then we'll send you the expression of interest farm um, and then do all the admin stuff yeah. after that. Yeah. It basically involves just coming in for a one-to-one interview. So basically a chat um, with myself or Hannah or another member of the team and to find out a bit more about what you're interested in, why you want to get involved, and just a sort of two-way conversation about if this would be something you could help with, what you want to do, that sort of thing. And it's really flexible, I know, because uh, (laughs) I uh, have intermittent periods of free time, and so I come and see you guys. Exactly, yeah. (laughs) So, yeah, brilliant. Well, thank you guys so much for being the first guest on my podcast. (laughs) Um, it's been great to chat to you. Oh, it's um, been so nice, so Max, as always. <laughs> I just love getting, having a proper conversation, do you know what I mean? And not yeah. Just, like, just talk about just, it. Just talk to someone. So I did, I came and talked to you. <laughs> yeah, it's microphone Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks so much for tuning in. If you want to get in touch, you can email headsuppodcast at gmail.com. See you next time.